I'm Scott Aniel, and welcome to By the Waters of Babylon, a podcast dedicated to discussion of Christianity in a post-Christian culture. There is perhaps a no more confusing and misunderstood concept in modern life and in modern Christianity than the idea of emotion. This category is one that I would argue has been considerably altered in more recent times than biblical authors would have thought about it. Any thinker this side of the Enlightenment needs to account for the influences of modernism and then postmodernism upon the subject of emotion if we are going to understand the Bible's discussions of Christian affection. In fact, the category of emotion itself is really fairly novel. It's a category that was created near the dawn of the Enlightenment to describe the experience of humans as animals. People look at certain language in the New Testament and interpret it through a post-Enlightenment understanding of emotion, which cannot be sustained historically or grammatically. So it's important that we think about this category. When theologians and philosophers prior to the Age of Reason spoke about human sensibilities, they used more nuanced categories like the affections of the soul, things like love, joy, and peace, in contrast to what they called the appetites or passions of the body, things like hunger, sexual desire, and anger. This way of thinking about human faculties is an ancient way of thinking. It appears all the way back in Greek philosophers who used metaphors of the human body to describe these categories. They used the metaphor of the splankna, which was a word that meant chest, to designate the noble affections, and the koilia, which is a word that means belly, for the base appetites of the body. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself employed these common metaphorical categories as well. He urged Christians in Colossians 3.12 to put on the splankna, the affections of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, he described enemies of Christ as those whose God is their belly, their koilia. And this way of understanding human sensibility really dominated Christian thought and philosophy from the patristic period after the close of the New Testament all the way through the Reformation. The affections are the core of spirituality and are to be nurtured, developed, and encouraged, while the appetites, they're they're not evil in contrast to Gnosticism. The appetites are not evil, they're God-given but they must be kept under control lest they overpower the intellect. Theologians believed that the Bible taught a holistic dualism where material and immaterial combine to compose who we are as human beings. In contrast to this pre-modern way of thinking, the purely naturalistic environment of the Enlightenment created an entirely new psychological category that philosophers called emotion, which is this sort of nebulous category of non-cognitive, purely physical, involuntary feelings. I'm going to expand upon that a little bit more in a moment. But first, I want to highlight a wonderful hymn that expresses Christ's love for us and our love for him. 
It's a hymn by Charles Wesley, written in 1740, entitled, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. There's wonderful imagery in this hymn that expresses the care and the love that Christ has for us. Uh, There is a story behind this hymn. Uh, Apparently, when Charles Wesley and John Wesley were traveling to America in order to uh, be missionaries, on the trip, they encountered a storm, and in the midst of a storm, a bird, a seabird, dove into Wesley's chest and buried himself into Wesley's coat, looking for protection from the storm. And Wesley uses that sort of imagery to describe and expand upon Christ's love and care for us. Listen to this imagery and you can see the the picture of the bird burrowing himself in Wesley's coat. The first stanza reads, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past. Safe into the haven, hide, O receive my soul at last. The hymn continues saying, we have no refuge other than Christ. We, we hang upon him as our only support of comfort. And then it focuses on the grace of Christ that is available to us who burrow ourselves in him for comfort. Wonderful hymn. One of the best tunes for this hymn is a Welsh tune uh, called Aberystwyth, one of my all-time favorite tune names. So I'd encourage you to visit classichymns.org where you can find and download this hymn for free. Well, one of the men who, in the middle of the Enlightenment, was dealing with this topic of the rise of this nebulous category of emotion, and he was trying to help people understand the distinction between the core spiritual affections that the New Testament talks about and the mere physical appetites that are good and God-given but are not the core and essence of true spiritual experience, was the American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards, whose preaching was a central part of the Great Awakening in early 18th century America. Edwards' preaching, which was very vivid in its imagery and yet delivered in a monotone tone from a manuscript, influenced and produced, beginning in 1734, what he would later call a surprising work of God. He said the Spirit of God began extraordinarily to set in and do a wonderful work among us, and there were, he said, very sudden, one after another, five or six persons who were, to all appearances, savingly converted— Although, he also noted, some of them were wrought upon in a very remarkable manner. You hear stories of people clinging to pillars, fearful for their lives under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Some people fainting, some people calling out. And so there were a lot of what today we would describe as emotional outbursts that accompanied some of the conversions during the Great Awakening. The same kind of work of the Spirit began to spread to other towns in Massachusetts and Connecticut over the next several months and years. And the vast number of conversions taking place in churches in the American colonies between the 1730s and 1740s, sometimes accompanied by intense physical responses, led to two extremes. On the one hand, some Christian leaders considered the physical responses as the defining characteristic of the awakening, and so they sought to recreate those experiences through means to stir up emotion. 
But other leaders rejected the validity of the awakening altogether because they saw what was happening as merely excesses of emotionalism. Both of these responses, both people who defined the Great Awakening by the physical excesses and those who rejected the Great Awakening because of the physical excesses, both of these responses came as a result of the newly growing secular understanding of quote-unquote emotion. And Edwards rejected both. Edwards' reply was to emphasize the distinction between religious affections of the soul and physical responses. And he defined religion as consisting in the affections, which are absolutely necessary for biblical religion, but those affections, Edwards argued, may or may not manifest themselves in external feelings or expression. Edwards said this, he said, the affections and passions are frequently spoken of as the same. So he saw this sort of growing convergence of these categories in in his time of the Enlightenment. But he continues, but in the more common use of speech, meaning historically, traditionally, there is a difference. Affection, he says, is a word that in the ordinary signification seems to be something more extensive than passion, being used for all the vigorous, lively actings of the will or inclination. So affections are those components of our will that move us to do what we know is right. But passions, he said, for those that are more sudden and whose effects on the animal spirits, that's his description of just physical, chemical feelings of the body, passions have an effect on the animal spirits, the feelings that are more violent and the mind more overpowered and less in its own command. Edwards insisted that while physical expression and excitement and even intensity of physical feelings may result from the Holy Spirit's convicting work, they are actually signs of nothing, that they neither define nor disprove true revival. Rather, he argued the only way to measure true conversion or any other spiritual experience in a believer's life is over time examining whether a person perseveres and grows in the Christian faith. We cannot measure true spiritual experience just by looking at a certain emotional expressiveness in the moment. Sometime after the awakening, Edwards noted that the more genuine conversions that truly occurred during that time were not necessarily accompanied by intense physical external feelings or outbursts. But the genuine conversions were those characterized by what he described as greater solemnity and greater humility and greater engagedness after holy living and perseverance. In fact, Edwards admitted that he should have been more careful during the time. Many of the conversions that were actually resting on the emotional experience later proved to be false. This period of revival in America really, though, soon proved to be a tipping point for what evangelical Christians came to expect as characteristic of spiritual experience. I want to talk about that just a little more in a moment, but first I want to recommend a couple of books that help to dive deeper into this subject of the change in the way that we have thought about human anthropology, human emotion, and and the, the human soul and body. 
Uh, one is an excellent book that traces the evolution of thought. It's a book by Thomas Dixon called From Passion to Emotions, The Creation of a Secular Psychological Category, published by Cambridge University Press in 2006. Dixon argues that the use of the word emotion in English psychology is a comparatively modern idea, as I've already suggested. And he he argues that the way that we use it today is used often carelessly and anachronistically if we go back to pre-modern authors and interpret what they are talking about when they talk about the affections or the passions, and we just lump it all together into one category of emotion. One book that takes that argument and specifically applies it to Jonathan Edwards and The Great Awakening is a book by Ryan Martin called Understanding Affections in the Theology of Jonathan Edwards, The High Exercise of Divine Love, published by TNT Clark in 2018, and actually in a couple months, the paperback version is going to be coming out. I highly recommend this book. Uh, I did. A, I wrote an endorsement for this book in which I said, interest in Jonathan Edwards has experienced something of a resurgence recently among evangelicals, yet treatment of Edwards' theology often fail to recognize his core anthropology, anachronistically equating his category of the affections with contemporary notions of emotion. There was a video going around on on Twitter recently of a popular evangelical speaker who was doing just that and saying that feelings, affections, all the same thing. But Ryan Martin, I think, provides the most comprehensive study of Edwards' thought on on these matters related to Christian affection. This book serves as a necessary corrective to contemporary treatments of one of Americans' most respected theologians. And then the third book I want to recommend is simply Jonathan Edwards' book, the religious affections. Just go right to the source. Edwards's book is as applicable and helpful today as it was when he originally wrote it. The quote I read earlier in which he carefully distinguishes between the affections and the passions is from that book, The Religious Affections. In this book, Edwards sought to correct the kind of confusion that we've been talking about. And he asserted that what was not a sign of spirituality was any kind of emotional expressiveness. He said the defining characteristic of true religion is religious affection for the Lord, but the physical excesses, as I mentioned earlier, are signs of nothing. That kind of distinction, I'm convinced, between spiritual affections and physical feeling must be maintained when we are discussing the nature of spiritual experience. A response of the affections, spiritual inclination toward or weigh something, may be accompanied by some sort of physical expression. It may be accompanied by tears or exhilaration or goosebumps or increased heart rate. But that kind of connection varies widely from time to time and person to person. And so physical feelings do not define the spiritual experience. A person can experience the affection of love without anything happening to him physically. This is certainly true because God experiences affections and he has no body. The core of the affection is not the physical feeling. On the other hand, someone can experience the affection of love and have a whole lot of physical things happen to him, and that is good and God-given. 
That kind of spirit-body connection varies based on many factors. But what is important to note is that there is no consistent universal connection between a certain spiritual experience and a particular physical feeling and expression. Two different people may both experience the the spiritual affection of love, but it may affect them physically in completely different ways. And even more importantly, we need to maintain this kind of distinction because physical feelings can be artificially stimulated without any spiritual experience whatsoever. A person may experience a fast heartbeat, goosebumps, and exhilaration as a result of the affection of joy, But those same physical feelings can be chemically stimulated by riding a roller coaster. They can be manipulated by what Edwards would call natural means. And so the essential point to recognize is that while physical feelings often accompany spiritual affections, those feelings do not define the spiritual experience. But unfortunately, in our day, because these kinds of distinctions have been lost, spiritual experience is often defined by physical feelings or external expressions. Many Christians rightly insist that spiritual experience is is essentially a component of the heart of the affections. But because they recognize no distinction within this category of emotion, they define emotion by physical experience. So they they look at places where, for instance, the New Testament talks about things like love or joy, and they interpret it to necessarily involve chemical processes of the body. But what is important to remember is is that as Christians, we must never be controlled by our physical feelings. We must never be controlled by our passions. As I mentioned earlier, the Bible calls this part of the man our belly, our gut. And it says that enemies of Christ are slaves to their belly. A Christian should never allow his gut, his belly, his physical feelings to control him. These feelings are not evil. They're part of the physical makeup of who we are but they must always be kept under control. Left unchecked by the Spirit, passions always lead to sin. This is why the Bible warns us, be angry and yet do not sin. Anger is not wrong, but it will lead to sin if we don't control it. In the same way, physical appetite is a good thing. But left unchecked, it results in gluttony. Sexuality is a wonderful gift from God, but uncontrolled, it turns to lust. Fear is a necessary part of of the survival instincts of man that God has given to us. But if it controls a person, he cannot operate properly. You see, the problem is that when the passions are set in conflict with the mind, the passions will always win. A man may know that it's wrong to hit another man, but if he's angry, that knowledge alone will not stop him from reacting wrongly. A man may know that it's wrong to commit adultery, but if he gives into the passions of his flesh, which are good and God-given, but if he gives into those, it can lead to lust and eventually sin, even if he knows it is wrong. It is only when our knowledge, our beliefs, are supported by noble affections that we can overcome our passions. As C.S. Lewis helpfully said, the head rules the belly through the chest. This is the essence of faith. Faith is more than just belief. Faith is belief combined with the affection of trust. 
When belief is supported by trust, a person will be able to overcome his sinful urges. Christians, therefore, should strive to gain more right knowledge, to gain more right belief, and nurture more right affections so that we live rightly. And as 1 Corinthians 9.27 says, we must beat our bodies. Not that our bodies are bad, not that our passions are evil, but we need to control them and make them our slaves. Thank you for listening to By the Waters of Babylon. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting services. If you enjoy the podcast, please give us a rating that helps to spread the word and share on social media so that others can find this podcast. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottannual. I blog at religiousaffections.org. And for articles, audio, and speaking itinerary, visit scottannual.com. Join me next time as we discuss issues related to Christianity in a post-Christian culture.